0: Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Aubrey, are you, um, uh, you are now because I just explained it to you, but before 10 minutes ago, were you aware <laughs> of the phrase, let's go, Brandon?
1: I had never heard of it. In fact, you explaining it to me off air was the first time I had heard of it. I've been in a little bit of a bubble for the past few weeks, so I feel a little bad that I did not know about this, but it's a whole thing, huh?
0: It's an enormous thing and I'm going to I have to be very careful in telling the background for people uh but essentially at a uh, it originated at a NASCAR event uh 2 3 months ago where the guy who won the NASCAR race his name was Brandon I don't uh Brandon Brown and uh he wins the race they're doing the end of the interview with him uh the end of the race interview and in the background uh there's chanting going on and the um the chanting was this. or I have to be careful, was uh, F Joe Biden. I will not okay. say the word, but uh, that was the chant that was going on at this NASCAR race. And the lady interviewing him said, isn't this nice? They are they are chanting. Let's go, Brandon. And
1: uh, people, <laughs>
0: people have now picked up on this. You might be wondering, why am I talking about this? Because it's huge now. People chant it everywhere. And it is meant to be derogatory towards the president. Right? It is meant, it is Uh, a euphemism,
1: obviously. For
0: uh, when you hear people say, let's go, Brandon, you know that they mean something separate. With that in mind, I want you to hear what happened at John Hagee's Cornerstone Church at the Reawaken America Tour in San Antonio, Texas, just the other day. 3,500 people in attendance, Aubrey, at a church. We got pews, we got everything. This is not a church service, but this is in a church. Pastors involved, everything. Let me just play a, 10 seconds of what happened at that church. All right, I'm going to come across here as the old fundamentalist kind of like get off my lawn guy, Aubrey. Uh-huh. I remember the day. When Christians didn't do stuff like this. Uh,
1: do you? Do you remember that I I re- day? I am
0: old enough to remember the day. Yeah. When we were not chanting in church euphemisms for four letter F words towards the president. But now everyone's laughing about it. It's kind of like a thing. People are wearing it on T-shirts. Aubrey, help me understand. Uh, I think this is a really big deal. I know others do. Ed Stetzer posted an article about it today at Church Leaders. Uh, But this was an event hosted. uh, Pastor Greg Locke was there. Evangelist Nick Vukovic, I'm getting his name wrong. uh, That worship leader, Sean Foyt. Uh, This is where General Michael Flynn was. We played his clip yesterday. Uh, Aubrey, people, Christians kind of chanting this and saying this, whether in church or not, uh, big deal or not a big deal?
1: I mean, (laughs) I... I'm going to sound like an old fundy like you, Brian. I think it's a very big deal. Yeah. I, I, you know, it is one thing to disagree with, dislike, not be happy about the current president-elect in America. Um, it is another thing. He's not
0: the president-elect. He I'm sorry. President. He's not the
1: president-elect. <laughs> I, always, I, know, I know. As soon as I said it, I went, eh, I'll, I'll keep going. Yeah. The president. Um, It is a completely other thing to lose your honor and your civility to try to dishonor and dehumanize somebody and just insult them. And frankly, it's a bad look. It's a bad look for Christians. Like enough is enough with this stuff and next level at a church, right? Like, okay, if you're a political rally and you don't want to honor Christ, you want to yell these things. That's uh, okay. That's on you. That's between you and the Lord. You're at a church. It's definitely between you and the Lord. Like, yes. I, 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 the optics of this are terrible. The reality of it's terrible. It's so unchristian. It makes me like want to vomit a little yep,
0: bit. Yep. And, it and happens- look,
1: I was not a Trump fan, but I was not at any church event ever yelling, you know what, Trump. I just wouldn't do it. It's not yeah. a it doesn't honor God.
0: And I felt the same way when Robert De Niro, the story was in this story here, used an expletive at the 2018 Tony Awards to insult President Trump, and he got a standing ovation for Come it on. during the Tony Awards. No. Like this is kind of a equal opportunity issue here. Yeah. Uh, at the Christian Post, they they write this article about this, and they said the Bible is crystal clear when it comes to the usage of the statement. Our instruction. With respect to what we say in general is to conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech mm. always be with grace as mm. though seasoned with salt okay. so that you will know how you should respond to each and every person. Our, uh, uh, here, my, uh, my old co-host, Ian Simpkins, tweeted I saw about this the other day, and he basically said this just proves that we don't know the difference between cussing and cursing. Uh,
1: Interesting.
0: And I get there might be people out there who are like, come on, what's the big deal? Sure. Uh, There's a slippery slope argument to this. But I would also just say that it just again highlights the lack of civility that we have in Uh, our culture. But Aubrey, I I mean, I'm concerned about our culture, but I'm most concerned because of our, our jobs and who we are about the lack of civility within our churches this rally happening in a church presupposes that it's a lot of Christians in that audience. And this chant was rocking and Mm -hmm. it was being, um, there was another chant I saw. There was another church where this pastor was going nuts and he got the whole church to start chanting. Let's go, Brandon. And I'm just Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. when did this become okay for us? Uh, Yeah. Aubrey, this speaks to lack of civility, doesn't it? It's not just that it's crass. It is crass. It is crass. But this is just yet another thing in the long lines of our deteriorating civility.
1: And and again, I think the heart of it, what it speaks of is like we have lost our way. We have forgotten whose kingdom we are actually a part of as Christians, mm-hmm. that, that these political leaders are meant to be prayed for. They're meant to be challenged. They're meant to be stood up against when they're wrong and, and we disagree with them. And yet, the Bible still tells us to honor those Mm -hmm. that are in leadership positions. And, 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 and above all of it is. Our call to Christ and Christ alone. And I think that's what's, that's what the problem is, is this so reeks of idolatry, nationalism in the church. And again, it just makes you wonder like, who is your allegiance to right now?
2: Yeah. Because this,
1: this to me does not say that your allegiance is to Jesus Christ alone. And that is the problem period. And this, I mean, this is going to take a work of God. This is going to take a revival. This can take Holy spirit movement because this type of movement feels so big and um, overwhelming right now, Brian, that you almost are just like, I, I don't even know what to do. This is who we are now. Yeah. Um, but I, I definitely worry. I mean, I feel like if this is the future of the church, like this is not a good place. We are worshiping empire when we really ought not to be.
0: Just picture – I'll close it this way. Just picture being in that audience with your kids. Mm, If mm, if you're mm. like, no, this isn't a big deal, and your kid turns to you and goes, hey, mom, hey, dad, why are we chanting let's go, Brandon? Mm -hmm. What would you say to them? Would you be embarrassed to be like, oh, it means this about our president? Or no, you would feel good about that. I just think this says – and I'll close out the way Robin Shoemaker at the Christian Post closes out. She says – as a follower of Christ, if I am to, quote, not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, as Romans 12, 21 says, then I need to swap out. Let's go, Brandon, with pray for Joe Biden. That's mm-hmm. a, that's a call. Mm-hmm. That, is that good. ticks some of you off. Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. And so, uh, yep, don't go chanting this in churches. That's the takeaway here. But no, more look at your heart to what you're trying yeah, to say. Coming up exactly. next, Aubrey. Uh, Oprah did an interesting interview with Adele yesterday, and they got into her divorce and the kind of the nature of marriage. And we need to unpack it next here on the Common Good, AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to the Common Good, AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us, Aubrey. Are you an Adele fan?
1: Oh, I love Adele. She's amazing
0: voice is pretty amazing is not it? oh
1: it is like soulful and sultry and oh it's so good love it yes
0: yes uh so adele was interviewed on sunday i believe it was by oprah so we did an oprah interview yesterday we discussed we're all
1: about oprah this week
0: oprah uh she interviewed adele and aubrey they got into a lot of different things it was pretty wide-ranging interview uh but they also got into adele's uh recent or maybe it's not that recent but her divorce uh she talked about uh, divorcing her husband, why she divorced her husband. Then they went in to talk about she's now dating again, kind of her her, her kind of new uh, kind of look at life through her new relationship. But when speaking about this divorce, Aubrey, I think it shines in a dangerous and huge light uh, on how a lot of people view marriage in our culture and how we can't view it this way. All right. So here's what I want you to hear. I want you to listen to Oprah's discussion with Adele.
2: Was there a moment when you knew, or was it a series of things that you said, can't do this anymore? With my my journey or in... in, in, in the, with the divorce from Simon. Like, because I, I, I you know, over the years, I've interviewed so many people who stayed, were miserable, mm-hmm. were miserable. And years before they actually made the move, yeah, had started thinking about it. So I'm wondering, was there a single moment or was... I do remember one of my friends, we were all, we were answering these questions in this very bougie magazine. hmm And it was, it was something like, what's something that no one would ever know about you? And I just, I just said it in front of three of my friends. I was like, I'm really not happy. I'm not, I'm not living. I'm just plodding along. And I remember there was a lyric that I wrote that I put on a song on, on 25, which was, I want to live and not just survive. hmm And, um, I, yeah, I definitely felt like that, but it was when I when I admitted to my own friends who thought I was really happy, that actually I'm really unhappy, and they mm. were all gasped. Like you know, I feel like it was sort of from there that I was like, "What am I doing? What what am I doing it for?" So many women are going to be liberated, I think, by listening to you because so many women specifically choose to stay on mm-hmm. in relationships when. They know it's not working, and yeah. they do it for the kids. And I've read where you said, you weren't miserable, miserable, mm-hmm. but you also knew you weren't happy. Yeah. And so you wanted to bring a happy version of yourself mm-hmm. to your son, yes. which I think is about the best gift anybody can give to their children.
0: All right. So she said she divorced her husband, not because she didn't love him anymore, but because she wasn't, quote, in love with him anymore. And then Oprah follows up by saying this is a great message to women out there who aren't, quote, 100 percent happily married. Aubrey, I joked to you off air that if (laughs) this was the standard, my wife and I would have gotten divorced three million times in the last 22 years.
1: A hundred percent.
0: But this is really dangerous. This is super dangerous to the institution of marriage. Help us understand why you think it's dangerous.
1: I mean, this is this is a recipe for marriages not lasting. Like, so let's just let's just um, unpack a few things, okay. She divorced her husband, not because she didn't love him, because she wasn't in love with him. One, I mean, this whole concept of being in love Mm -hmm. is really like, of course, we feel emotions. We do sometimes feel in love. That feeling, as any mature adult knows, rises and falls throughout seasons of life. So the fact that she actually does have love for him to me is one of the most heartbreaking things. Like I'd almost rather her say I divorced him cause I hated him and he was a jerk, but the yeah. fact that there's still love there and that means there's friendship there. Like, What is marriage, if not a long term friendship where, yes, sometimes you're in love, sometimes you're out of love, but you're committed to one another. Yes. So I think the idea of commitment is just missing from this. The idea of marriage being a sacred vow between you and the Lord and your community is missing from this. I think marriage as an institution is missing from this. This is all about me. How I feel, whims, that kind of thing. And then I think the second (laughs) problematic thing is Oprah, who has so much influence. So much. Saying, great, wow, that's so inspiring for people, women out there who aren't 100% happily married. Like you said, okay, that's every marriage. Like (laughs) You're not – I love being married to my husband. I am not 100% happily married all the time. He is not 100% happily married to me all the time. We know that. But because we're committed to one another, we pour into the relationship. Like this is one of those things where like the grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. You and go. if there were problems, like if there was abuse, if there was cheating, I mean, all of those things. That's a whole different conversation than what this is, which is simply like, eh, I didn't feel like being married anymore. So I wasn't. Oh, that's so empowering. No, it's not. It's actually a lie of our culture right now. It is not empowering. You know what's empowering? Staying committed and faithful to one person over the long haul. Yes. That's empowering.
0: It's so weird. I, I often feel like when we talk about the commitment of marriage, right, and the stick to I don't know if we've all just been influenced by Disney over the years that, like, you're supposed to live happily ever after, right. and it's all just right. like, it's like a honeymoon for the next 50 years, but it's weird. I, I think the great beauty of marriage is, like, this commitment, this covenant, this stick-to-itiveness, this, this and that. Uh, what isn't but that's never celebrated and in fact i feel like when we talk about it being a commitment and covenant people are like oh that's not a romantic view of marriage but you're <laughs> right. like no that's the actual beauty of marriage yeah, yeah. is the day in day out uh it starts as months ends as year goes to decades like it's just this idea of like I am with this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are going to be high highs. There are going to be mm-hmm. lows. There are going to be kind of the the middle that's kind of, ah, that's fine. You know what it is? And, but, uh, but I'm going to grow in my depth of commitment and love. We've said this before, that love that comes out of commitment is so much greater than the love that's just kind of out of infatuation exactly. in the beginning, right?
1: Yeah, so uh, much richer. Mm-hmm.
0: Let, let me read this. I found this quote from Rebecca McLaughlin. She is a, on Twitter, she is a, Uh, Author, Let me just read some of her tweets about this because I think it brings up an interesting point. She says there is so much evidence to show that this is, in fact, a terrible message. Marriage is not about locking into a state of perpetually in love with one spouse. Marriage is about locking into a commitment to love someone precisely when you're not feeling all the feels. Leaving a stable, loving, only okay marriage is not a recipe for happiness. The evidence actually suggests quite the reverse. And there's also a lot of evidence su- to suggest that unhappily married people who stick with it have a good chance of being happy five years later. Yes. But Adele's desire for something truly passionate and all consuming is not wrong. She's just looking for it in the wrong place. Mm. Her real desire isn't for a better, merely human husband. Her desire is for Jesus Mm. and only he can satisfy it. I pray that she finds it or rather uh, he finds Mm. her. I found that to be like, Oh, I think you just hit on something. Oh, there. man,
1: that's like she that lady. I don't know who Rebecca McLaughlin is, but I'm following her now because she preaching like there that is real right there. That's yeah, truth right there.
0: Yeah. So what do you do, Aubrey, if right now uh, someone out there is listening? So it's not, you know, and they're going, yeah, you know what? I'm considering getting out yeah. Like my husband or my wife. They're not a bad person. I, I love the life we've had. We've made a family. I just don't love that. I don't I don't I'm not in love. What What do we actually say to that person? Like, like, how do we practically ask that person? Hey, don't leave, but keep yeah. working at
1: it. Yeah. I mean, OK, you know, Brian and I, we, we, you and I have both talked from a place of conviction about this, but we are also pastors and shepherds. So let's start by saying yes marriage is so hard and Brian and I I mean I'm, I don't want to speak for you Brian but because you've been married longer than I have I can say probably for you it there are days when you do want to walk away there are days when you want to throw in the towel so so yes like affirm this is really hard I will also say like this is one of those things where you have to have the end view in mind and the the treasure the beauty of being committed to somebody um, out of obedience to God is ac- absolutely will have eternal benefits for you. And like those statistics that were just read, you will experience joy on the flip side if you keep going. That might mean calling a marriage therapist today. And look, if you want to private message to me, I can give you the name of the marriage therapist that Kevin and I have gone to because we have been in times in our marriage when it's mm-hmm. really hard. If you want another recommendation, I can give one to you. Get you to a therapist, talk to your pastor, but do the work to stay in because that long run work of marriage is so rewarding. And you know what? It won't just impact you, it impacts the next generation too.
0: Absolutely. So I thought that was important when I read it. I was like, oh, that's not, that's not it. That is not it. And we have to fight against that in the church. Coming up next, Dr. Daniel Doriani. He is the author of a book called Work That Makes a Difference. We're going to discuss uh, your work, your employment, what you do, what difference does it make for the kingdom and with God. We're going to have that conversation next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope For Your Life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. And uh, as pastors, Aubrey and I, we often talk about what difference does your uh, Monday through Friday work mean in your life? Like why? how can God use that to make a difference? Why does it matter? And with that in mind, we're excited to bring on author of a book called Work That Makes a Difference. He's professor of biblical and systematic theology at Covenant Theological Seminary, also the founder of the Center of Faith and Work in St. Louis. That's Dr. Daniel Doriani. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm great. Good to be on the show with you, Brian and Aubrey. Yeah, we're grateful for you, Dan. Hey, before we jump into your book and this really important topic, why don't you uh, introduce yourself a little bit more to our audience so they can get to know you? Well, right. I'm a little
3: bit like you, too. I've been a pastor for a number of years, about 16 years, but I'm also a professor most of my life, and as a pastor, I noticed that a lot of the people in my churches had very serious doubts about the value of their work from Monday to Friday, and it's been a lifelong interest of mine to help people uh, express their faith in the workplace and see the value of their work. I've interviewed hundreds of people, maybe 500 people, and I also have a podcast called Working that interviews Christians who are making a difference at their work.
1: Oh, that is fantastic. And we told you off air, Dan, that Brian and I are both pastors. So there are a lot of people that we all probably minister to or come into contact with that maybe don't see their work as something that contributes to the kingdom. And so I'd love to just jump in there. Talk to us about how our work actually can serve God and serve our neighbor and serve the world.
3: Right. So maybe the best way to do it is to look at what Jesus said in Matthew 25, where he's, you know, he talks about the last day when everybody stands before him, including his own people, and he'll say to them, blessed are you who, um, by my father, you who inherit the, you'll inherit the kingdom from the foundation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. I was naked, I was sick, I was in prison, and you served me. And, and the righteous will say, we don't remember doing that. When, when did that happen? Uh, that, that missed us somehow. Jesus will say, look, when you did it to the least of these, anybody who was hungry, anybody who needed food or water or clothing and shelter or medical care or in prison or other ways isolated, you did it for me. And, and, you know, the truth is we usually do that at work. I mean, if you're feeding people, you may serve in a soup kitchen at Thanksgiving, which is great. But the truth is you're really feeding people if you work at a grocery store or on a farm or you're a truck driver. And, you know, my interest in this all began with a, a godly truck driver who told me, my work is meaningless. All I do is, is drive bread around. And I said, well, what do you want people to do to drive to Minnesota to mm-hmm. pick up some wheat? Um, you know. It, our transportation system in the West <laughs> is what is what allows people to have lots of food and color, you know, clothing and shelter. So um, working as a truck driver is very important. We, we didn't believe that until the pandemic. Now we see it. But there are constantly jobs that we mm-hmm. diminish the significance of. And people diminish the significance of their own work so often. Because they just see it maybe as a way to make money or as time spent so they can uh, get to the real service, maybe volunteer work or thing for their families.
2: Yeah,
0: and Dan, I'd love to drill down there. Where, where does that come from? Where, where, what have we done that has kind of split the, uh, the sacred from uh, our everyday life? Uh, where, how do you think we've grown that in the church and as Christians?
3: Yeah, there's probably four answers to that question. Brian and Aubrey. The first one is, uh, for a long time, the church did exalt pastors, or priests, and bishops, and so forth, monks, nuns, above everybody else, and said, those people have callings, and everybody else just has ordinary work, and really godly people contemplate God. And that was, uh, you know, done in isolation, and, um, you know, maybe a monastery. And that idea was around for a thousand years, and had a lot of influence. Uh, another issue is, a lot of Christians are deeply uneasy about the work they do. You know, they're they're not sure it is meaningful. And you have to say that a few Christians probably are doing work that isn't very valuable, and they know it, and we should probably say it to them. You know, if you're running, I don't know, making promotional t-shirts or promotional pens are going to fall apart almost immediately. Uh, They know their work isn't very good. Or maybe uh, marketing things that they know are inferior products, and you have to say that. But most of the time, Christians have, have lost sight of, of the ways in which they love their neighbors themselves. So I have a daughter who's an architect, and I remind her that when she helps put up a building, that building can serve people, thousands of people, for 100 or 200 years. And it, you just yeah. have to lift your eyes and see that when you're making a chair, that chair might be $5 you know, for your back porch, but it might last 100 years. And making a good chair is loving every person who ever sits in that chair. And designing a good building is loving every person who enters that building for the next hundred years.
1: Oh, that's, I I love thinking about our work like that. Dan, you said uh, before that you interviewed close to 500 people, if not more, I would love to just hear one or two stories that really stood out to you as you were writing.
3: Yeah, I'd love to share two stories. Um, so one of them is, is a man who's become a very good friend of mine, and I didn't realize what a, an effective businessman he was. And um, for a little while during the pandemic, one of his firms was the leading uh, manufacturer of ventilators in the world. Uh, he just has this enormous knack to, um, to turn things around and to see potential and to make deals that somehow other people don't see. And he had this tiny little ventilator company, and, and he was – near an, a recently abandoned GM plant. And he said, you know, we could transform, you know, we could take this empty GM plant and the recently unemployed workers there. And we train them and make a bunch of ventilators. But, you know, even he is prone to say, I trust, um, you know, I, I just made a little deal. I just happened to be near a, a plant. I just happened to see things. A few other people won't see. I'm like, my friend, you, you saved so many lives. So that's on the one side. On the other side, I've a friend as a surgeon for many years. And um, I tell the story at length in the book. But in brief, uh, he's you know, one of these very high-end surgeons who, who took care of a certain cancer that hit behind the eyebrows and behind the eyes. And when he started, everybody died. Every person who got it died. And then slowly, he began to save people's lives, but they were blind. Afterward, and then he learned how to save one eye and then he learned how to save both eyes and you know this took decades but then after it was over he began to see that the um that the chemo and radiation that that was given by other people on his team was excessive and would actually impair their functioning down the line as they lived you know 20 or 30 or 40 more years and so he started work on that, and, and he was not an I just guy. He, he knew that what he was doing is important because he saw the consequences of too much chemo and too much radiation. And and he had to sacrifice really hard. I mean, he sacrificed the facing down a lot of opposition from people who said, You don't know what you're talking about. You're a surgeon. You get out of our lane. We're the ones who do post operative care. And he said, Well, yeah, but I see what happens to them a year down the road when their their bodily functions have been compromised by too much chemo and revolution. Mm. And he used his position for a long time. So in the book, I talk about the four Ps that make give us the power to change the world a little bit, at least our corner. The first is position. And and then of course you have to have passion, you have to persevere and you have to have principles that you live by. But he used his position as best he could for a long time and, and got a lot, made a lot of progress on changing protocols, but um, he also paid a price. And making a difference in the world um, does also mean a willingness to pay a price because people do resist change that could hurt them um, or that upsets, yeah. um, I'll say, treasured or
0: established
3: outlooks on things. It's it's hard to affect the change
0: mm.
3: in a big system.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's such an important uh, concept and such an important book called Work That Makes a Difference. The author is Dr. Daniel Doriani. Uh, Dan, you also wrote at the Gospel Coalition an article we talked about, you know, back when it came out called, I Just Do Ordinary Work, just in in quotes. And uh, we've heard you use that phrase a bunch. Thank you so much for this, man. Where can people connect with you? Why don't you give us all the places where they can read what you write, maybe pick up your book, maybe social media. Where can people connect with you? Thank you for
3: asking that. Well, the good news is I'm the only Dan Doriani in the world. that's an immigrant name that's um, just, you know, one of those names that has no meaning in any language. <laughs> so if you find my name, you found me. Uh, but I do have a Center for Faith and Work in St. Louis. You can find that. And, and you know, my books are in all the, all the normal spots out there, uh, whether, you know, Westminster Bookstore, Christian Book Distributors, or Amazon. And uh, I'd love to have you listen to my podcast. I have some really interesting Christians on my podcast called Working. And uh, thanks for asking.
0: Yeah, Dan, it's been great to have you on one more time. The name of the book is Work That Makes a Difference. That author is Dr. Daniel Doriani. Dan, it's great to meet you. Thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah, glad to be with you, Brian and Aubrey. Our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Aubrey I know that you're not caught up but uh, the next episode of the the what is it the second to last is second to last penultimate is that,
1: that is the penultimate correct right. so well the, well done using penultimate you. correctly
0: Thank you the penultimate and I never know whether to say penultimate or penultimate but uh, it is uh, of the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast which has now been going on for I don't know four six months or so um, and Aubrey this one was an hour and fifty-seven minutes. that's a
1: full-length feature film right there.
0: Like I listened to it on the way to the studio, on coming home from the studio. When I dropped my son off somewhere yesterday, I was just listening to this thing. Uh, but uh, this one's a hard one, Aubrey, and I know you're going to listen to it. You haven't mm-hmm. listened to it, but all the ten episodes, twelve episodes, whatever, leading up to this have been telling the story of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, which no longer exists. Uh, under Mark Driscoll. And it just is an autopsy of kind of the personality driven, celebrity driven mega church and how they kind of lost their way. Uh, But Aubrey, this one, I will not uh, ruin it with too many details, but this episode uh, tells uh, the story of the end of the church. By the end of the two hours, Mars Hill church does not exist anymore. And it is painful Because you're going, how did this happen? Like there were Mm. so many instances in the hour and 57 minutes of this episode where I was going, how did this happen? How did nobody step in? And the Mm. amount of pain, Paul David Tripp talks about meeting with the other pastors and elders when this was like they were like a month from being closed. The pain was at the all time high. And Paul David Tripp says, I've never been in a room with so many young men weeping.
2: Oh, weeping, wow. and you're
0: wow. like, wow, oh my wow. goodness, Aubrey, the dysfunction was unbelievable. R- but something mm-hmm. you and I have been talking about this podcast over and over again. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've tried to say is this isn't a helpful podcast if it's just, how did they do that? What was right, their exactly, problem? Exactly, exactly. The purpose of this podcast, I do believe, is to look inward now. You and I are pastors, is to look at our own ministry models, to look at our own churches, for people out there who are parts of churches, to go, what do I look for in a pastor? What am I going to fall to? And with that in mind, the Gospel Coalition, I think it probably times purposefully, Uh, the Gospel Coalition wrote an article, Mark Hampton wrote an article called How to Spot a Personality Cult. Interesting. Asking – how do we know when a church is healthy versus when it is a cult of personality? He says, congregants have fallen into cults built around personalities who promote their glory under the ruse of gospel proclamation. Hmm. That is essentially this last episode of Mars Hill. That's hmm. it. It is uh, that it was all about Mark Driscoll, not about the glory of God and all the, the damage that it done. Uh, but Aubrey, how do churches know when it's about the cult of personality, when it's about the pastor, when it's about the celebrity and not about uh, a healthy church? How do we even begin to know that? And what's the danger in that?
1: Yeah, I think these are really important questions to be asking because it can be confusing. I mean, I think some of us can stand on the outside and be like, I would never be a part of a church like that. But I think the reality is, if we're being honest, many of us are really drawn to Cults of personality, because usually the preacher, the senior pastor, whoever is inspiring, an amazing communicator, and has a lot to teach us. And so, I, you know, we're drawn to that because I think we want that. And so, how do we c- kind of? Uh, really discern, okay, well, what's just really good teaching and anointing and it's okay. And what is now becoming about like a narcissistic leader? Like we have to be able to discern that. So some questions that the article brings up that I think are really helpful One is the church doing shameless self-promotion. So this is perhaps like a very obvious sign, really easy to spot, but you know, look at the church's uh, social media, look at their webpage. Is it just photos of that one person on stage in front of a large crowd? Mm -hmm. Is it all about their, their books and their social media? Like that kind of tells you, okay, this is built around one person, not around a mission. Okay. And uh, this article says something really convicting. Uh, If that person is not from Nazareth, then you've got a problem. You know? Oh, interesting. Um, and then another thing that says is numbers matter most. If you're part of a church, that's all about just more and more and more and more. That's another sign. I think why it matters, Brian, there's more signs we can talk about too. You know, at the end of the day, I think the long-term impact is, and the article says this, I think this is spot on, that then the church's prophetic voice is lost Mm -hmm. and the church's witness is lost because the more and more stories we have like Mars Hill, where the church just falls apart. I mean, that should actually break our hearts, Yes, but then our witness to who Jesus is um, gets tainted. And at the end of the day, we're supposed to be known by our love and by our unity, not by our perfection, certainly, but we have to be built on Christ. We have to be following Christ. He has to be the center of all we do or else, um, the ramifications are like broken hearts. They're also people's eternal souls. And it's also like our discipling the world is at stake as well.
0: Yeah. uh, That's all really well put. I would say if you look at your church and your pastor, uh, seems more about their brand. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here's a big one for me too, Aubrey. If uh, and this happens in small churches and big churches, this isn't just a mega church problem. The no, mega churches get the the kind of publicity about mm-hmm. these things, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. But this is not just a mega church problem. And let me give you another diagnostic. Uh, if 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 renewal church came to you and Kevin and said, We can't exist without you.
1: Right. Like
0: if if it's the old, it's That's too a problem. big to fail. If if it if Four Corners Community Church comes to me and says uh, if Brian's not here, then this church ceases to exist. That is an enormous problem. Yeah, That exactly. becomes then a church that is built on a person, on yeah. a personality, on, an, on a brand. Yeah. Then it is uh, built upon Jesus. So, uh, Aubrey, this is a hard question because you and I are both pastors. I've, dis- I've learned that I've never actually searched for a church to just attend in my life before. I've only ever since I got out of college worked at churches. But if somebody was looking for a church, what are the things you would tell them to look for Mm. where it's a healthy kind of place and they're not going to fall into this trap? Because I think a lot of times we look for the glitz and the glamour, uh, but those maybe shouldn't be the things we're looking for.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, that's a really great question, Brian. I would say, you know, look at their vision, look at their mission statement. Usually you can find those things online or um, their their doctrine. I think those types of things are really, really helpful. But then again, that can't be the end because Mars Hill had some great doctrine. Mars Hill had some great vision. Yeah, And so I think the second thing you really need to look at is who is in leadership, how long have they been there, and what's their sort of track record of integrity? And I I think that will tell you a lot about a church. And then I think the other thing is um, sometimes I think in our culture of church shopping, we go to church one Sunday and we're like, well, I didn't like the service. That's not the church for me. You really need to give a church probably four or five Sundays to – Feel the rhythm of it to get to know their leaders to get to know their ministries to get to know their heart then I think you can really evaluate um, what is this church all about and then again like we had said before if you start noticing shameless self-promotion if you start noticing they're just constantly talking about money and people and how big they're getting that's maybe another flag for you one thing we didn't mention is that uh, from this article is if the church has a trail of dissenters meaning this if those who raised questions or concerns are silenced or pushed to the margins that's a cult of personality
0: Mm, that's good and you've got to go listen to the mars hill podcast
1: i want to but i know it's going to be painful so i'm like gearing myself up for it. you
0: need to but what you just said is it in a nutshell any dissenters were Mm. like literally fired at Mm. all at every turn literally fired uh and not just sidelined but told you have to leave the church and sign this non-disclosure agreement (laughs) Uh, like it was really painful so i'd encourage people to read this but go listen to that podcast it's it's enthralling there's some issues with it but i think if taken in the right way i think there's things for all of us to learn well we're glad that you're with us today stay with us you're listening to the common good am 1160 hope for your life
1: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad that you're with us today. I was speaking at an event recently, and afterwards, a lady came up to me. She was obviously very educated, very well traveled, not a Christian, but definitely seeking some truth spiritually. Okay. And she had a ton of questions for me that essentially are apologetics questions, like defense of the faith questions. And um, let me let me throw them all out at you and just see, like, what do you think or what would you say if you were me? So the first one is actually connected to something we talked about earlier in the show. But she was really struggling with the idea of Christianity because of what she called a male deity. She said, I really have a problem with the fact that your God is male then the next thing she really struggled with was the concept of like an enemy so you know quote unquote a spiritual enemy like like satan or like demonic forces that she could not wrap her mind around that and then her her biggest question which is probably a question that a lot of people in the world are asking Christians think they're right, but they think every other religion is wrong. Like how I can't get behind that. So she basically she's like throwing all of the apologetics questions the at makers. me. Yes. yes, yes. Okay, so uh, maybe take one and tell me what you what would you have done in my shoes.
0: Yeah, they're all great questions. Aren't they great? Uh, and I think people think that we as pastors have all the answers kind of in mm-hmm. our back pocket. Like we've studied all these, we figured these out, we've got our pat answers. Mm-hmm. That is not true. Right. So, like I'd love to hear, uh, I'll answer one of them, but I'd love to yeah. hear like, how did you react in that moment? Yes, like, I, because, I would love to tell you, uh, because that is, that is tough. I would say the male, we talked about the male deity one before.
1: Yep.
0: Uh, I would just say, you know what? Like, The Bible, this is how the Bible, this is God's description of himself. Mm -hmm. Like, and that's what we see. That doesn't mean that that God only fits into the box of what we as humans know of as male. Yeah. Right. Like, I think we're, we're 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 losing kind of the picture of the grandeur of God mm. uh, and that the indescribable nature of God. Mm. Uh, when we just go, what is he just like a man's man like we see around here watching football, <laughs> and it, like all the stereotypes of a guy? No, that's not what we're saying at all. But at the same time, what we said earlier in the show the Bible describes God in a very specific way. And so uh, we, want to, uh, we want to be faithful to that description while unpacking who God is and yeah. and the grandeur of God. And so I'd probably go that route. So all right, walk me through it. She, she approaches you. Are you just getting off the stage? What is happening Yes. There?
1: Yeah. So I've just gotten off the stage. I'm kind of on the side selling books, chatting with women, which is what I do after most events. One of my favorite things to do. And here's the thing, you know, I have just just as of last week, finished my master's degree in evangelism and, and leadership. So actually, I have taken a few apologetics classes. So I'm like, okay, Lord, help me remember my training. You know? <laughs> and I'm literally praying, Jesus, help me. One of the things you learn in in these classes is to listen to the Holy Spirit while listening to the person. But thankfully, the biggest the biggest learning point popped into my head. The Holy Spirit really reminded me. You always have to ask people, why do they ask? Yes. And here's why. Because And you know this, Brian, as a pastor. Because their questions are usually from some type of pain point in their life. Mm, yeah. And so I remember just going, oh, Lord, thank you for So I said... Hey, I have I have struggled with the concept of like a male only god too. Can you tell me why you asked? Mm. And of course, she began to talk about pain she experienced from her dad, pain she experienced in her marriage. And so the concept of relating to worshiping, submitting to a male god was deeply painful to her. Yeah, yeah. And so it start my instinct was to almost want to have an intellectual conversation about, yes, we call God Father, but let's, you know, at the end of the day, what I was able to do was to say that I'm so sorry for the pain that you have experienced. That is not what God would want for you. Mm. I know that God hates that. That's good. Let me challenge you to look at the life of Jesus because I am actually still a Christian today because of how Jesus treated and treats women. And if you read Every interaction with Jesus and a woman, you will see that he only honored, he mm-hmm. only healed, he only cared for, he only empowered. So I would really, my challenge you would be to open your Bible, read the New Testament, read the stories of Jesus, specifically Jesus and women. And I think you'll be surprised that the Christian God is not one who diminishes women or hurts women or abuses women, but is mm-hmm. actually one who honors and loves deeply. And that, I mean, that was only because God reminded me to ask her why she was asking. And I think that this is something that we have to do as Christians when people bring up kind of these challenging questions about God. We tend to, um, we, answer, we, defend, yeah, we want to answer, we want to defend, we want, but a lot of us don't really have the right answer. Like you said, Brian, like a lot of us are just like, we're doing the best we can, especially with some of these hard concepts. But when we can know people's stories, um, that changes everything that changes the conversation because then I could say yeah I mean i you know I struggled with bad boyfriends when I was growing up I struggled with this I understand that but look at Jesus look at what he offers and how good he is and that that becomes a totally different conversation yeah. right how
0: did she uh how did she respond to that I'm just yeah curious.
1: she she said she, she, okay i could go I could go back and I could look at the Bible and then i <laughs> then I invited her would you want to come to church with me sometime and, and as soon as I said church she literally started backing away from physically like she was like no 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 i don't know. and then and then i kind of i i very gently challenged her on that like hey you you might be surprised at, as what you as a as a um, intelligent well-traveled women have to bring to the church. God might actually not want you just to learn, but to actually bring something to the table at whatever church you're a part of. And I, you know, she was like over that for sure. But then
0: you, and then you chased her into, (laughs)
1: you will come to Jesus right now. No, I, I, uh, I let her go at that point. And I, I keep, she keeps coming to mind, which is why I want to talk about her today, but I keep praying. I think the Lord, I know The Lord is, is wooing her. And I'm guessing there's going to be other Christians placed in her life very purposefully by God to begin bringing her to himself. But that Mm. was, that was just a really interesting, like, okay, Lord. Yeah. That people are, when people ask questions about evil, when people ask questions of the odyssey, when people ask questions about like, you know, how do you know, how can you be right? And everyone else is wrong. These questions are born from pain. And they have been hurt by someone in the church or they have watched their loved ones experience deep, deep pain. They have known suffering and what they're really looking for. I think at the end of the day, some people are looking for a reason, but I yeah. think most people are looking for belonging and beauty and acceptance and love, which is what God has to offer. And so what we do. I think we have we have such a beautiful witness and answer for people's questions behind their questions. I
0: think you make a great point that we need to ask, what are the questions behind the questions? Yeah. Sometimes it's just being argumentative. Sometimes it's legitimately like, how do you explain why good people, why bad things happen to good people? Mm-hmm. Or how right. can a good God, uh, how can there be hell? You know, right. like those, right. for some people, it is an intellectual thing. But I think more times than not, it's what you described before she had a she has a uh a complicated past with yeah. with men, yeah and so how do you reconcile that with uh with a picture of a father of a male? Mm-hmm. you know a lot of times the picture of our earthly father we take into that's how yeah. kind of what forms our picture of our heavenly father. Well, if you have a terrible earthly father or an absent he- earthly father, what are you going to think of God? like I think we have to uh, I think you give us a great takeaway here. What's the question before you get defensive, before you argue, Mm -hmm. before you try to go all apologetic and like, hey, we're going to debate. Yeah, Let's ask what's going on in this person's soul. Let me try to get there and then we can have a conversation.
1: Yeah. And I I think just to end with the word, I think it's first Peter or second Peter where he talks about like always be prepared with the answer when people ask you for the hope that you have. So you should Mm -hmm. have a reason. But he Mm -hmm. also says do it with gentleness And I think that's part of this is asking people's story as part of gentleness and compassion. All right. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about the eight types of capital in our life and are we using it well? You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co host, Brian Fromm, and we're sending you home on this Tuesday evening. We love to send you home to something encouraging, inspiring, challenging, something to get you kind of thinking throughout the evening. And um, Brian, I was listening to a podcast that I've never listened to before. It was over at the Good News Network. It was a conversation about the eight forms of capital or currency in our lives. And I had never Thought about this, and so I thought it'd be kind of interesting. But when you think about capital or currency, don't read anything yet. Okay. Don't listen to anything yet. But what okay. do you tend to think of?
0: Uh, what are the things at my disposal? So, currency hmm. is I can. What do I use capital or what do I use currency for? It's it's to purchase something. It is to. Uh, it allows me to either experience something or buy something or have something. So it may not be money capital, but what are the things that I have in my life that I can use to, uh, uh, to bring about some sort of result that I'm trying to get? How's that? Yeah. Sound?
1: Yeah. That's, that's perfect. That's really good. Well, in this podcast, um, a guy by the name of Ethan Roland identifies eight forms of capital. Here's what he says, and then I'm going to play you a little clip. He says that we have financial capital, material capital, living capital, social capital, intellectual, experiential, spiritual, and cultural capital. Let's go ahead and take a listen to a little clip of him talking about social capital.
4: If you have built up extensive intellectual capital and you're not utilizing it, you could free that intellectual capital to do something for you, or your spiritual capital, or your cultural capital, or your living capital or your material capital, or even your financial capital. And definitely the one I think a lot of people don't realize what they have in is social capital. And so we're going to go through these today and figure out, hey, how do we make sure we're building them up? How do we make sure we're using them properly and ethically and not wasting them? Because I think some people would, like, look at social capital. You know, that's pretty easy to understand from what it is. basically your network of people you know and trust you. And a lot of people think, well, if I am using my social capital. I'm kind of taking advantage of people. Well, if you're doing good things with your social capital, by not using it, those things don't happen. And it's actually unethical not to use the leverage that you have to do things that you feel are right in the world that are for the benefit of yourself and others.
1: Okay, so I think this is an interesting concept because I will say, especially about social capital, that I, you know, you you don't want to feel like you're using somebody, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. when he, the way he talks about it is, but what if you're doing it for the good of other people? And what if you have this capital, for instance, like intellectual capital or this great experience and you're not using it, mm-hmm. then he describes that as stranded capital, like almost all this untapped capital that's going to waste and it could actually benefit the world. This is coming from a non-Christian perspective. So I think it's really interesting, this thought that, Human society is filled with value, but we may not be using it really well. What, what do you just think about that generally, Brian?
0: Yeah, I, I've often thought of pastoring. That's what you and I do. I've also thought of pastoring as like, uh, not to make it too transactional, but that I spend my time kind of fill, uh, like making deposits, right? I'm making like mm. capital deposits, if you will, that's like good. you said, into individual and corporately. I'm building trust, right? I'm doing things that are allow, that are making a connection. It's social capital. Uh, and I'm not doing that for for a – like so I can draw on it later, but I may need to draw on it later. And so yeah. we all can think of people in our wow. lives that we've had where we're like, hey, I don't know about that decision, but I trust that person. I know yeah. that person. I've spent time with that person versus the person who comes in and goes, we're changing everything. And you're like, I don't even know you. Like yeah. who are yeah. you? And so I, I think that's what I think of with social capital. Like um, I'm, not, I'm not trying – what, what becomes dangerous here, Aubrey, is to think like I'm only doing that for a means to an end so that I can use mm-hmm. that person later. That's not mm-hmm. what I'm saying. But I'm, I'm building up relational equity, if you will. Yeah. So that uh, as a leader, I can call upon that at a later date and go, okay, hey, yeah, but we've spent time together. You know me, you know my heart. Yes. Uh, and, and I think we can all look at relationships some ways in that way. Like, okay, I've built relational capital, relational equity with person X, Uh, And now I'm going to ask them to trust me here. Mm. I'm going to ask them to do this for the greater good or whatever else it might be. The
1: common good.
0: There you go. And I think some people miss that, right? Like sometimes it's just like, do as I say, whatever I tell you, you just go ahead and do this. Mm. And you're like, well, who are you? Why would I listen to you? Right, exactly. Uh, And so I think that's an important difference. So I think social capital is a big one.
1: Yeah, I think social capital is a big one. The other thing I think is interesting about all of thinking of different forms of capital is that sometimes especially in the States, we we consider our net worth just our bottom line in the bank, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but this concept is really that we all have net worth that's not just in dollars. And this is actually really biblical. But the fact that we have different gifts, we have different connections, we have different experiences, we have different... Um, even things that we've learned throughout our lives that we can sort of consider our net worth. Now, of course, we want to put our identity in Christ. But if we're evaluating our net worth, like what do I bring to the table? It's not just money. It's that I have material. I have some material blessings. I have some lived experience. Mm -hmm. I have social Mm -hmm. connections. I have intellect because of what I've learned. I have experience. I have spiritual currency. I have cultural currency. And I think it helps us evaluate even ourselves as a more holistic person rather than just like oh i you know i don't really have much to offer because i don't have a degree or because i don't make this much money or because i don't drive this car instead we look at the whole person and we say but wait i have life experience but wait i'm connected to you know my neighbors but wait i know a lot spiritually or i've had spiritual experiences that all of that can be used to benefit and bless other people i mm-hmm. think it it, it um it helps us see ourselves, like the dignity that we have because we've been created in in the Lord's image and that he has given us certain gifts and he is the one giving us these currencies. I, it's just an interesting way to frame the conversation.
0: Yeah. And I think, let's be honest about regular cap about money. We usually yeah. talk about capital, it's money.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Are I just letting that money just sit like and mm. for a rainy day or so that I can use it on myself? Or are we going to use some of our capital, whether it be a yeah. lot or a little? We just talked about generosity a little bit ago. Am I going to use my capital that God has blessed me with in order to further his kingdom and help people and love the least of these? Like, what am I going to do with the actual physical money capital that I have, the social capital, the other intellectual capital, right? Maybe I've had the opportunity to go to college, get my master's, do these things. What am I going to use Mm. that for? Basically, this is looking at everything in our lives and Mm -hmm. go, how can I use uh, what I've got to benefit others and advance God's kingdom. And I think as we all do that, you start to see movements happen. But as it's all about me, 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 and just myself, yes. then it becomes, like you said, stranded. It becomes just, it just kind of sits there.
1: Yeah, that's, that's good. I think it's, this is again part of that posture we've talked about in the show before. The, I think it's Dave Ferguson and John Ferguson, both of them. Um, continue to pour into church leaders about being a hero maker. So the goal is not just for you to be a hero and be all about you and gaining more and being awesome, but what can you, from your experience, your life, your studies, your walk with God, what can you pour into other people so that they become heroes so that we see this movement like mm-hmm. you talked about? I, mm-hmm. I think sometimes we know these things to be true and we want them to be true as Christians, but we need to be reminded, right? Like God has given each of us gifts, currencies to use this language, capital to use this language, not just for us. But to bless our neighbors, to honor the name of God, and to, um, in one sense, create these little small ripple effects of movement so that um, more and more people are blessed for the common good. That's Once right. Once again, right. I, like, I like the common good out there. All right, Brian. Well, thanks for um, leaning into that with me. What would you say your big currency is that you bring to the table?
0: Mm that's a good one. I, cool. I tend to be a social person. I yeah, have opportunities you are. You're to connect with people. I think, how do you leverage those other than, uh, that? And just the large amount of money that I've amassed.
1: Exactly. That's what I was just thinking. <laughs> pastor minus money. minus pastor certainly money. all the pastor money that Kevin and I make. Well, on that note, thanks for being here today. Everyone will be back again tomorrow right here from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian from I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.